Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is our text for today. This is the 34th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary. One of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter was to raise funds for a missionary journey that he was going to take to Spain. The heart of God is missions, and therefore I would say to you, you yourself should consider whether or not God is calling you to be a missionary to a foreign land. Pray about that sincerely. If he is not calling you to do that, I can tell you what he is calling you to do, and that is to help to send other missionaries. Today's message is 43 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is Our D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Please turn to Romans chapter 7. As you turn, remember that God loves you and hear the word of the Lord as I read the first six verses of Romans 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Father in heaven, we are going to today study this passage in an attempt to understand what it means to be free from the law. But Lord, even if we do not fully understand that, we want to thank you, Lord, that it is true and that, Lord, you have released us from that bondage. And I pray, dear God, that today we would experience that liberty through the gospel. And so now, Lord, as I attempt to explain it, and as I do proclaim your word, I pray that you would give your people ears to hear, and I pray that you would open their hearts through your spirit, making their hearts soft and receptive to the word Lord, may we leave this place today different than we are right now through the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We just finished Romans 6. In Romans 6, Paul closes out the chapter by stating that we who are born-again Christians are not under the rule or the dominion of sin, S-I-N, sin. Now as we move into chapter 7, where we are today, Paul's going to make the argument that we, as born-again Christians, are not under the rule of the law, L-A-W, or the dominion of the law of Moses. And strikingly, 
he uses almost the same phraseology in both chapters to prove his point. And this is intentional. This is one of these times where I need you to look at your Bible and to notice the comparisons. This is very striking and it is very, very important. In chapter 6, where he is speaking about the domain of sin, and then in chapter 7, where he is speaking about the domain of the law, he uses almost the same phraseology to describe both events. Notice in chapter 6, verse 2, we died to sin. Now look in chapter 7, verse 4, we died to the law. In chapter 6, verse 18, we are free from sin. In chapter 7, verse 3, we are free from the law. In chapter 6, verse 7, we are set free from sin. And in chapter 7, verse 6, we are released from the law. In chapter 6, verse 4, we walk in newness of life. And in chapter 7, verse 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. So you see, the strategy in communicating truth about freedom from sin in chapter 6 and is identical to that in explaining freedom from the law in chapter 7. Now, it's easy to see why it would be important for us to be free from sin, because the wages of sin is death, chapter 6, verse 23. But the question is, why would we want to be free from the law of Moses? I mean, after all, conventional wisdom says that rules are good and that rules promote good behavior. Um, the, 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 uh, this would be especially the mindset of a Jew in the first century. You see, the Jew would say what sets us apart from immoral pagan Gentiles is that we have the law of Moses, and that law elevates our morality. Well, surprisingly, what Paul is going to do in our text today is he's going to demonstrate that not only does the law of Moses not promote holiness, but rather it arouses our sinful desires and actually makes things worse. You're in your garage and there is a fire. You want to put that fire out. And so you see that there is a canister with some liquid in it. You know that liquid puts out fire, and so you take the liquid and you pour it on the fire. The only problem is that liquid is gasoline. It's going to make the fire worse. In the same way, the law of Moses, when applied to us, makes us worse than we actually are. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point of the passage is that we who are born-again Christians are dead to the law, L-A-W. We had a precursor to this back in chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul said this, and turn back one chapter and look at that verse, uh, for sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And then from chapter 6, verse 15 through the end of the chapter, what Paul is going to do is he is going to explain that being under grace does not mean that we are free to sin. Rather, it means that we are slaves to righteousness. Which brings us to our text today, which is chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And in it, he is going to make it clear that we are not under the law of Moses anymore. And once again... As I did the last time we were together, I'm not going to be using an outline. 
Let me just say a word about homiletics. I know that I am supposed to use an outline. I know that it is easier for you to listen if I use an outline. I just couldn't come up with one. But let's strike a compromise today, shall we? I will give you a two-point outline. Point number one, you are dead to the law. Point number two, there is no point number two. There's your outline. Here we go. Point number one, just going to go verse by verse. Point number one, you are dead to the law. Verse number one, what does Paul say? Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Uh, The word or is very curious there. It gives us a connection with the previous chapter, probably taking us back to what he said in 6.14, that you are not under law. And then he uses the phrase, do you not know? Uh, As I've told you before, this is a backhanded way of saying, I know that you do know. In other words, this is a reminder of something uh, which you are already familiar with. And notice the warmth that he addresses them. He calls them brothers. This shows affection. This shows his heart. And it also shows that he is directing his words to those who are believers in Rome. So what we have so far is something like this. Brothers, let me remind you of a well-established truth which you already know. And then he interrupts himself and identifies his audience. He says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, this phrase here does not refer only to Jews, but it also refers to Gentiles who knew the law of Moses as well. He is not singling out one ethnic group, although the Jews as an ethnic group would know the law, but what he is singling out is one informed group. And that informed group would probably consist of everyone in the church at Rome. And the reason I say that is because we know that those people would have had a familiarity with the Old Testament and with the law of Moses. And the reason that we know that is because Paul quotes and uses the Old Testament more in the book of Romans than he does in any of his other letters. The majority of the church members then in Rome would have been familiar with the Old Testament. And therefore, through his frequent use of Old Testament quotes in the book of Romans, we can deduce that he was confident that his audience knew the law. The majority of the church members there would have been Gentiles. But his point is, I'm going to talk about the Old Testament. I'm going to talk about the law of Moses. And I'm working off the assumption that you are familiar with it already. And then look at your Bibles and notice that he lays down a general principle which is amazingly self-evident. Most of Romans is so complex. I demonstrate every week that I don't understand it fully. But here's one thing which is just intentionally obvious and is not complex at all. The law is only binding upon you if you are alive. When you die, you are released from the demands of the law. Uh, Now, when he says that, 
it is just so obvious. You have to ask yourself, what is he up to here? Notice again what he says. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Okay. No offense, Paul, but that's not really profound. That's pretty basic. Paul, you have a keen sense for the obvious. What's the catch? And there is no catch. Do you agree with that statement? What, that dead people are exempt from keeping the law? Well, I mean, how could I disagree? Uh, My dead mother, who died five years ago, uh, is not required by law to shovel her walk when it snows. I mean, if so, I would have to hire a medium to get a hold of my mother on the other side, get word to Irma that her sidewalk is is has snow on it and she has to shovel it. That's absolutely absurd. No, death relieves her of all of her law-keeping responsibilities. How in the world could we disagree with that? So, yes, Paul, okay, I'll play along with that. I'm in agreement. Death frees a person from law-keeping obligations. But where are you going with this, Paul? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Let me illustrate. And he's going to use the subject of D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Tammy Wynette, 1968. Divorce. This is a very, very interesting analogy that he uses. Look in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, so far so good. When a man and a woman before God say, I do, they are joined together by God. They are one flesh in his sight, and they are by law, supposed to stay together. Now, there are exemptions, of course. There are exceptions, of course, and that would be for fornication, Matthew 19 or Deuteronomy 24, or for abandonment, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But all things being equal, Paul is not speaking here about the exception clauses. He is saying all things being equal, a couple says and means we are married to one another, and therefore we are bound to one another till death do us part. Now, Paul uses a woman here rather than a man for this illustration because under the law of Moses, there was no provision for a, for a woman to divorce her husband. There was provision for a man to divorce his wife, but not the other way around. So Paul uses the wife as an example and says, the woman is bound by law, that is the law of Moses, to stay with her husband until he dies. But once he dies, she is free as can be. I mean, she can bring a date to the funeral for that matter. She she is free to do whatever she wants at that point. But that freedom does not kick in until he is dead. So don't even be singing about D-I-V-O-R-C-E while you are still married. Verse 3, notice what he says here. Continuing the analogy, accordingly, uh, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The phrase lives with another man doesn't imply that she is here shacking up. It is referring to a second marriage. Uh, 
Now remember that the point of the passage is not rules for marriage, divorce, and remarriage per se. The point of the passage is that Christians are dead to the law of Moses. The passage is about our relationship to the law. Marriage and D-I-V-O-R-C-E are analogies that everyone can relate to. However, what he is saying about marriage, divorce, and remarriage are true statements in and of themselves, even if we don't use them for their intended purpose here, that is the analogy. And that is that if one is divorced for non-biblical reasons, like irreconcilable differences, or we grew apart, or the woman I am married to right now is not the woman that I married, to which I would say run a DNA test on her, she actually is the woman that you married, for, for whatever reason, if there are not biblical reasons and you get divorced, it, it, it is a violation of the law of God. So when you get married to someone, you are to stay married to that person. Now, when it says that the woman would be considered an adulteress, uh, it doesn't mean that she should divorce her second husband, for to do so would be to commit another sin. And it doesn't mean that if she is married to her husband that she should be living with him as brother and sister, for that would be to commit another sin. I think what he's saying here is your initial act of consummating the marriage, that second marriage, is an adulterous act if your first husband is alive and if the first divorce was an unbiblical divorce. I think that's what he's saying here. Now, again, it's not the point of the passage, but I'm speaking about this for just a second, and I'm saying one of the keys that I think could help you in your marriage is to remove the word divorce altogether from your vocabulary. We're in a tough spot here, honey. What are we going to do? You know what? I'm not sure. But I can tell you with certainty what we're not going to do. We are not going to divorce. Don't even present that as an option. You are bound to one another until death do you part. But as true as that may be, that's not the point of Romans 7. His point is to draw an analogy. And he starts with marriage and then he zeroes in on the fact that only death frees one from that marriage to remarry. And now as he moves into verse 4, he is going to make his overarching point. The heart of the passage today is in verse 4 and it is concerning believers and their relationship to the law of Moses using marriage as the analogy. What is the point of the passage? Here it is in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. A lot here. Let's take it phrase by phrase. The word likewise tells us that the marriage and widow verses were there for an illustration. And notice also, once again, Paul's tone and Paul's heart and Paul's warmth. For the second time, he refers to them as his brothers, brethren, fellow believers. And what he says next is a bit confusing. This is the point of the sermon where I need you to put on your thinking cap and to look at it because 
on the surface, it is a little bit complex and slightly confusing. And that is that the analogy between the widow in verses 2 and 3 does not line up neatly with the spiritual reality that is explained in verse 4. Because the widow in verses 2 and 3 is married to a man, and then she is only released when he dies. The husband is the one who dies, thus rendering the widow free to remarry. By contrast, when we get to verse 4, we are the ones who die. Verse 4, you also have died to the law. But don't let this imbalance blur the overarching point. Because Paul is not attempting here to go apples to apples. He's shooting at one overarching truth, namely that death changes things. Death changes things. Death changes things. Uh, That's the point. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. The main point then is that one's relationship to the law changes when death occurs. End quote. And it's quite simple. And it's just that simple. In other words, something happens when a woman's husband dies, and that is that she is free to marry another. Likewise, something changed when we died to the law. But what does that even mean, that we died to the law? What does that mean, that we died to the law? Well, whatever it means, It is obviously spiritual in nature, seeing as how we are still physically alive. Also, there's something else that we can state with absolute certainty. Whatever it means, the means by which our death to the law occurs is spelled out with clarity. If this were a game of Clue, we would know which murder weapon was used, and that is We died to the law through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. What does it mean that we're dead to the law? Not absolutely sure, but I can tell you how I died. It was through the body of Christ. This is a reference to Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins. And it is a reference to our union with Christ. You see, we were joined to him in his death such that when he died, we died too. This is exactly what Paul says back in chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and we were. You've heard the expression, late for his own funeral. Well, in this particular case, you are late for your own death. Physically, you were not there at all. Nevertheless, you died because the elect were joined to Christ in his death when he died. Now, that is the how we died, but we have not yet addressed the question of what. What in the world does it mean that you also died to the law? Well, I think it means two things. First of all, it means that we are free from the condemnation which the law brings. We are dead to the condemnation of the law. In other words, the curses and the penalties, uh, hell being one of them, the curses and the penalties which the law demands for those who do not live up to its standard of perfection 
are removed by the cross. This is what he's going to say in chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, so what does the law say? The law says, do and live and don't and die. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all, A-L-L, all, <clears throat> things written in the book of the law to do them. But because you died with Christ, therefore the law is dead to you in that the law cannot condemn you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. The law says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then it says, Christ became a curse for us. So with respect to the condemning power of the law of Moses, it can't touch us anymore. We are freed from that. We are dead to it. But I think there's the second thing that is implied here in being dead to the law. It means more than that. And what it means is that the law no longer has dominion over us. It no longer can boss us around. Let me make my point in this way. You'll remember that in the big picture, Romans chapter 1 through 4 explains what our salvation is and how we get saved. And then you'll remember we're in another section here, Romans 5 through 8, which is where we are now, and this explains what the Christian life is like from the time we get saved until we die. And the law of Moses is brought into the conversation here in reference to the Christian life. And what it is saying about the Christian life is it does not help you with your Christian life. We are dead to it. In fact, we're going to learn in the next verse, in verse 5, that the law actually makes our sinful condition worse, just like that gasoline that we threw on the fire. So not only are we dead to the law in that it doesn't condemn us, but more importantly, for purposes of Romans chapter 7, we are dead to the law in that it no longer rules over us. It no longer can de make demands of us. Douglas Moo puts it this way when he refers to the law as the power of the old age which the person apart from Christ is bound. Moo continues, just as the believer died to sin, chapter 6, in order to live for God, so he or she is put to death to the law in order to be joined to Christ both images depict the transfer of the believer from the old realm to the new. As sin reigns, God and righteousness cannot, and neither, as long as the law reigns, can Christ and the Spirit, end quote, and thank God we are dead to the law with respect to it still having the authority to boss us around. We are free from condemnation, number one, and... The law is no longer our boss. Uh, do you get the flow of the argument? There has to be a death before that widow can be remarried. Well, there has to be a death before we can be saved. And in chapter 6, we are told that there is a death, that we died to sin, which means that Christ died for us. And then in chapter 7, there is a death, that is a death to the law. How did the death to the law come? Well, the murder weapon is through the body of Christ. Allow me, please, to be repetitive and redundant and belabor the point. 
And that is that when Christ fulfilled the law and died for you, you died to the law. That's the point. Now, please be very, very careful here that you do not slip into the error and the heresy of antinomianism. Be careful that you do not say that there are now no rules. In fact, it could be argued that we who now who are dead to the law are under a different set of rules and the rules that we are under right now are actually stricter because they deal with our motives and they deal with our heart-searching desires for why we do what we do. We are still under the rule of God. We are still commanded to live godly and holy lives, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't think that because we are dead to the law, there are now no rules. But what Paul is saying here is that Moses is no longer the one barking out the orders. Also, please be careful not to say that the law of Moses is in no way helpful. It is, because all Scripture is profitable. We can learn much about holiness and God's righteous standard from the law of Moses. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. But it is no longer your master. It is not the overarching system which dictates your behavior. You are dead to it as a system and as a tool to bring about godliness. D.A. Carson put this with respect to the law. He spoke of its principial obsolescence. As a guiding principle, it is now obsolete. The law is no longer your boss. We are dead to it and dead to it for a purpose. Again, verse 4. So that, so that, there is a purpose why you are dead to the law. So that you may belong to another. It's not just that your husband died. He died so that you could marry another. And who is it? This is beautiful. Don't miss what Paul is doing here. Who is it that we now can marry? Chapter 7, verse 4. To him who has been raised from the dead. Here's my question. Paul, if you want to save ink, why don't you just say that we are married to Jesus? Because that would be accurate. Why are you referring to Jesus as the one who has been raised from the dead? That would have been sufficient. The reason is because he wants to complete the gospel message as it relates to our union with Christ. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins and he was raised again on the third day. What is our union with Christ in this verse? That through the body of Christ, we died to the law so that we might be married to the one who is risen from the dead. Let me say it again. Earlier in the verse, he said, you died through the body of Christ. That is the crucifixion. That is the first half of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Guess what? You stayed with Jesus for the entire ride of the gospel. You belong to, you are joined to, not only the one who died, but you are joined to the one who was raised from the dead. And Paul wants you to see that not only are you joined to Jesus, 
but you are joined to the risen Jesus. The gospel is of first importance. The resurrection makes a difference. So, I died to the law in order to belong to the risen Christ. And I belong to the risen Christ for a purpose as well, in order that we may bear fruit to God. You know, most of the time in Scripture, when you see that phrase, bear fruit, it draws up the imagery of the trellis and the vine, or the grapes, or the produce in the field. That might be what he's talking about right now. But given that the analogy is about marriage, I think he is speaking here about the fruit of the womb, children. Now, I know that there are some couples that cannot have children, and that is sad. We must love them, and we must pray for them. But usually, the norm is a byproduct of children. A couple gets married, and they have offspring. And I believe that's the metaphor that he's using here. Now, he's not literally saying that you should have children, although, wouldn't that be nice? But that's not the point here. He's saying, if we are joined to Christ, it is for a purpose, and that purpose is to bear fruit. And just as in marriage, kids usually come along, so too, in our union with the risen Christ, there will be evidence of that which will be fruit and that is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Remember, in Ephesians 2, 10, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. So the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence that we are married or joined to Christ, which brings us, to verses 5 and 6. Now, interestingly, verses 5 and 6 are a microcosm of chapters 7 and 8. A chapter, um, verse 5 is negative and it corresponds to or sums up the rest of chapter 7. Verse 6 is positive and it sums up or is a microcosm of chapter 8. Let's take them one at a time. Look at what it says in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Living in the flesh is another way of saying being in Adam or being lost. Living in the flesh is not an expression, and somehow this has gained popularity in in uh, uh, Christian lingo in recent years, that, that we have saved people who are living in the flesh. Well, that, that You will not get that from the Bible. Living in the flesh is a way of saying that the person is in an unconverted state. And Paul says, while you were in an unconverted state, you had innate sinful pleasures. That's who we are by nature. We have a desire for sin, and it comes through our fallen, depraved heart. It is your wanter, the thing that you want with, your sinful passions. Chapter 7, verse 5, they were at work. Notice they were not stagnant, but they were relentlessly laboring. When you were in your unconverted state, did you ever say to your heart, 
Don't you ever go on vacation? Why are you always working on me, on my members? You work while I'm working. You work while I'm sleeping. You work while I'm dreaming. You work while I'm praying. Your sinful heart is relentless in its labors in your members. And that's known as total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that you are as bad as you possibly can be. The word total means that the totality of your being, everything that you are, all aspects of your being are infected by the labors and the influence of sin. The unsaved person has to confess, I I can't catch a break here. I am, as George Beverly Shea said, in sin's dread sway. My mind, my will, my emotions, all that is within me, my members, they are being worked upon by sin. And guess what? That marriage also produces children. That marriage also produces fruit. And it says in 7.5, it is fruit for death. First of all, it is your own eternal damnation and death in hell. But it also could be a reference to the way that you lead and influence and contribute to the damnation of other people. You see, being in the flesh means that I am spiritually dead and that I myself am headed toward hell, but I am also a producer for my family and everybody that I touch in society for death as well. I love the word while, W-H-I-L-E at the beginning of the verse. While I was in the flesh, while I was in an unconverted state in Adam. That is the way that I used to be, but things are different now. And we know that they are different now because in verse six, he says, but now, and that is contrasted with the while in verse five. If you're keeping score, and I hope you are, hopefully you've noticed that I skipped over a phrase in verse 5. And the phrase is, aroused by the law. Let me read all of verse 5 again with emphasis upon the phrase, aroused by the law. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, aroused by the law, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Notice the unusual function of the law of Moses on the unsaved person. You see, we, as a part of conventional wisdom, think that rules will actually enable people to live better. But what Paul is saying here is that the law of Moses is going to make things worse. Closest I ever came to death was in May of 1995. It was with a group of men from this church. We were traveling at a men's event in Washington, D.C. We were traveling north up Interstate 95, and we pulled over at the Maryland House, a roadside stop, in Maryland, and there I ordered a Roy Rogers hamburger. As I was eating, Frank Finnamore said something which was funny, and rather than 
spit the food out. I contained it in my mouth and it went down the wrong pipe and it lodged in my throat. I, having a reputation as a practical joker, tried to get the attention of the men who were sitting at my table and they didn't believe that I was actually choking. And so I picked up the chair beside me and I threw it across the room. And they said, I think he's serious. Alec Millen, who played for the New York Jets at the time, he was six foot seven and about 280 pounds, came to my rescue with the Heimlich maneuver. But instead of holding me here where he's supposed to, he got up under my rib cage, under my armpits, and to my neck and started picking me up. Thankfully, Patrick LaRoche was there, who was fully one-third the size of Alec, went up and started beating on his back and said, stop it, you don't know what you're doing, you're going to kill him. You see, what Alec was doing in an attempt to help me was actually lodging the food further down in my throat because he was holding me so high. The law is doing that exact thing. It is not making you better, but what it is doing is making things worse. It is the gasoline on the fire. It is lodging the food further down into your windpipe. While I was in the flesh, things were made worse through the law, which was arousing my sinful desires. Now, Paul does not explain why this is true. He simply says, says that the law contributes to bad behavior. Perhaps I can explain it in this way, and I'm open to the fact that I might be wrong about this, but I've often tried to counsel parents who have children that don't behave well for them to break off association with other children that don't behave well, and I've said, well, here's a start. Prohibit your child from playing with such and such another child. And their response usually will be, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to prohibit them from being with that other kid. Because as soon as I say that, all they are going to want to do is to be with that kid all the more. See, maybe what the law does in a very perverse way, it, 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 it sort of gives us suggestions for the things which we can do which are bad. Maybe the law makes us worse because we are bad and we are bent toward evil and the law is a suggestion book which enhances our wicked imaginations. You tell someone not to do something and that's the very thing that they want to do. That's how wicked we are. When something is prohibited, it all of a sudden becomes desirable in our wicked minds. I'm not sure. Paul doesn't say. But whatever it is, that's a part of our past life. That is a part of our pre-saved life. That is a part of our flesh. That's the way that it used to be. But now we are dead to the law. And Paul's going to develop the deficiencies of the law fully in our passage, which we'll be looking at next week. But for now, suffice it to say, it wasn't helping us. And therefore, thanks be to God that we are dead to it. Which brings us to the positive verse verse 6, which is a microcosm of chapter 8, 
And it explains our current condition as Christians and what is that. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that, or in order that, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. But now, in our converted state, in the new covenant era, we are released from the law. The imagery of being released takes us back to verse 2. The woman was released by virtue of the fact that her husband died. The law is therefore no longer our master. Why? Because we died to it. And again, I must stress that our death to the law is not a decision which we made. It was done for us before we were even born. It was done with our, without our consent. It was done without our approval. God didn't summon us prior to our birth and say, would you like to receive the free gift of my son dying for you? We were not a contributor to this at all. Not even an awareness of this is, is what makes it go away. In fact, we don't do anything at all. It was done for us at the cross. And why this is so important is we need to remember the cross and the gospel when we are dealing with this subject of death to the law. Charles Hodge, who wrote a commentary on the book of Romans back in 1835, says this. It is rather um, heady and lengthy and perhaps somewhat convoluted quote. So uh, please put your thinking caps on and listen to what Hodge says. As the only way which we can obtain deliverance from the law is by the death of Christ, the exercise of faith in him is essential to holiness. How did you die to the law through the death of Christ? How do you progress in holiness? By remembering the death of Christ. When we lose our confidence in Christ, stop right there. When you forget about Christ, when you start to lean upon yourself, when you concentrate on sin, when you are looking, Peter, at anybody other than Jesus on that water, you're going to start to sink. When we lose our confidence in Christ, we fall under the power of the law and relapse into sin. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. You keep your eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hodge goes on. Everything depends, therefore, upon our maintaining our union with Christ, end quote, and without him you can do nothing. Notice also that our emancipation and release from the law is for a purpose. God has a purpose in mind. Verse 6, so that, or in order that, we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul now says explicitly what we guessed he was referring to back in 6.14. Remember when we covered 6.14 a few weeks ago when it says we are not under law but under grace? And my guess was, well, being under grace is contrasted with the law and therefore it means the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant era. I'm convinced now that I was right. You see, previously, Israel had the law of Moses, but it did not produce the power to keep it. In fact, it made them worse. 
I mean, my goodness, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, and the people are getting naked and 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 getting drunk and and worshiping a calf at the base of the mountain. The law didn't help them. Israel had the law, but it didn't possess the power to keep it. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law. Paul's going to say in 7.12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's not that there is an unjust law. It's simply that the law was not designed to make us holy. It was a perfectly good law, but it possessed no power to keep it. If I have a perfectly good car, but I do not have any gasoline, it does not matter how good the car is. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live holy lives, not the law of Moses. The rules don't make you holy. The Holy Spirit makes you holy. The Holy Spirit makes the difference, and the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He is a person. He is a divine person. He is the third person of the Trinity. There is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so just as God the Father is a person and Christ is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. And just as God the Father is God and Christ is God, so too the Holy Spirit is God. He is divine. And part of His function is to make us holy, ergo, Holy Spirit. He works from the inside and he works on the heart. By contrast, the law of Moses does not produce godliness. Now that's not to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't use the word of God. Notice what the text says here, the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. The old way of the written code doesn't mean that we are doing away with the Bible. He does use the written word. In fact, when you think that you are feeling the leading of the Holy Spirit, but yet you are going against the Word of God, one thing I can tell you, it is not the Holy Spirit that is talking to you. The written code in Romans 6-7 is a reference to the law of Moses as a legislation, as a guiding principle in its totality with condemnation to those who fall short. It insinuates, it, it incites sin in the heart. The written word of God, when read correctly, is communication which points to the grace of God in the gospel. And the Holy Spirit certainly uses that to make us holy. The point I'm making is this. Paul is not saying that spirit-empowered living is 100% driven by feelings. It does rely upon the written word of God. Paul here is saying exactly what Ezekiel said and prophesied back in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, my Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Even in that, notice what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is working in conjunction with the statutes, with the word of God. Three observations as we close. Number one, promote the sanctity of marriage. 
uh, your own marriage and the marriage of your fellow church members. As I stated earlier, there are exceptions where divorce is permitted, fornication and abandonment. But otherwise, God's design and God's command and your responsibility is that you stay together. So when things between the two of you get rough, and they will, and if you say that they don't, uh, you need to confess your sin of lying because they will. Believe me, I know. <laughs> Make sure that there is a firm, fixed, non-negotiable resolve. We are staying together. Likewise, when you counsel others, your first word of counsel is this. Not sure what we're going to do here, but I'm going to tell you what, what you're not going to do. You're not going to get divorced. Straight up front, D-I-V-O-R-C-E is not an option. Love the one you're with. Love the one you're with. Crosby, Nash, Crosby Stills Nash, 1970. Observation number two. Examine yourself honestly and ask the questions, am I bearing fruit, verse 4, and am I serving God? See, the reason we have died to the law is ultimately so that we will bear fruit and serve God by the Spirit. And if your definition of free from the law means that you are free to sin or to live a lazy life with respect to pursuing holiness or serving God, then you are not free from the law. Those who are free from the law are filled with the Spirit, and they exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, and they vigorously desire to serve, verse 6. And so I ask, examine yourself. Are the fruits of the Spirit evident in your life, or are you one who is living a life of lawlessness and licentiousness? If you are not actively serving the Lord, your freedom from the law is as useless as the car without gasoline. And finally... Most importantly, cultivate a sensitive heart which is in tune with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Cultivate a sensitive heart which is in tune with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Yes, read your Bibles. I hope you're on some kind of a reading plan this year. And study the Word of God and memorize the Word of God and know theology and know doctrine. But always, in every instance, when you encounter the Word of God, whether it is taught in Sunday school, or whether it is your personal Bible reading, or when I am proclaiming the Word of God in a Sunday morning service, or in any other way that you encounter the Word of God, you must always, 100% of the time, have an intentional ear which is attuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit, which says, Lord, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to change? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to worship? Now, it's not purely subjective, but it is partly subjective. And it is always active and it is always practical. So the question is, do you sense the leading of the Holy Spirit. Some people are more emotional than others. Some people are more logical than others. I I'm not talking about your temperament. Even the most logical person in the room is not exempt from feeling the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you, do you sense 
the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you do not, there is something desperately wrong in your walk with the Lord. Either A, you are not saved, for whoever does not have the Spirit of God is not his, or you are in a very weakened condition. And so I ask you, can you tell when you have grieved the Spirit? Are you aware when you have quenched the Spirit? Are you convicted when you resist the Spirit? Do you hear Him? And when He speaks, do you act? You see, your death to the law means a life and a marriage to the one who is risen from the dead. And this is so that you will bear fruit by the Spirit. And you will not bear fruit from the Holy Spirit unless you can hear and follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. In closing, I ask you today, have you noticed in this sermon today that I have said very little by way of practical application? I said some things about marriage, but otherwise, have, have you noticed that, the, the, that this has not been me telling you what to do? I've just sort of been explaining the text. And yet, as vague as this sermon has been, I ask you, has the Holy Spirit been talking to you about something in your life which needs to change and needs to change today? If so, right now, not through the law, but through the Holy Spirit, yield, submit, say yes, repent, surrender, Listen to the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, right now. And it might be something that has nothing to do with this text in Romans whatsoever. Whatever it is, right now, say God, say yes to God. Listen to His voice. Do not attempt to silence Him or send Him away. But serve God right now by obeying what the Spirit is telling you to do. And as you do, please keep in mind that He's not doing this to beat you up. He's doing it because He loves you. And I hope you remembered that. All right. 167 down. 267 to go. Which means what? <laughs> means we're getting there. Father in heaven... Please send your spirit to speak to the hearts of your people through your word and give us grace to obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.